Uh, but tonight we're in Psalm 19. Psalm 19. I'm going to pray for us in just a moment, and we're going to get started. My name is Wade, by the way. If you're our guest, I'm the pastor here, and I lead a what we call an open Bible study. That means you can show up any week and get something out of it. And this open Bible study is focused on the Psalms. We started in Psalm 1, and we're taking one Psalm per week, and we've made it to Psalm 19. So it's been a great time just studying God's Word, chapter uh, one chapter at a time, and digging into the Psalms. They are rich, and they are uh, wonderful. So let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we're grateful for this uh, time to step away from the busyness of life and to be here with one another, Lord, as our faith family, and Lord, to uh, study your word. And I pray you would use this time to give us a deeper hunger for your word, uh, to teach us your word, that we might be changed and you might be glorified. And we'll thank you and praise you for that grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. Psalm 19. Before I read it, I want to just remind you of what the Psalms are all about. I've given you a summary of the Psalms. It comes from Dr. Kendall Easley. And he gives you this one-sentence picture of what the entire book of Psalms consists of. God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. And so he's just reminding us here that the Psalms point us to the greatness, the grandeur, the glory, the grace of God, and remind us that God should get our worship and God should have our confidence No matter what we're going through, times are good, God should get our worship and our trust. Amen? If times are difficult, God should have our worship and our trust. We should uh, give uh, Him our praise and give Him our confidence because He is worthy of that. And so the Psalms help us to understand that. Last week we talked about how you handle victories. You know, a lot of the Psalms deal with struggles and trials and tribulations and keeping your perspective in, in the midst of those tough times. Psalm 18 was about how you, how you celebrate victories and what it ought to do in your life. Well, tonight we're going to talk about Revelation, the doctrine of Revelation. When I say Revelation, I don't mean the book Revelation, which is the last book in the canon, the last book of the New Testament. By Revelation, I mean the doctrine of uh, the reality that God um, unveils himself to us. He, he, he tells us some things about himself that we would not know if he did not Tell us. I want to talk to you about the doctrine of Revelation because that's what Psalm 19 is all about. Psalm 19 may be one of my top three favorite psalms. Top five. It's somewhere right in there uh, because we're about to get into some good. We're about to get into Psalm 23, and of course, I love Psalm 145, and I like Psalm 1 and Psalm 119. But um, uh, Psalm 111 is one of my favorites. But but it's it's definitely top ten. It's definitely top ten. Psalm 19. Look what it says there. To the choir master, a psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God. What declares the glory of God? The heavens declare the glory of God. So the heavens are saying something, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard, Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them is set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. There's nothing hidden from its heat. So David here is talking about 
the created order, and what the created order proclaims and declares. But look how he shifts gears in verse 7. The law of the Lord, talking about the word of God here, is perfect, reviving the soul. Hey, you need personal revival? The answer is the word of God. It's perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. You need some wisdom? Read your Bible. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Hey, need some joy? Read your Bible. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 19. This psalm is all about God's revelation, the ways that God reveals himself to us. Now I want you to put on your thinking caps tonight, okay? Because we're going to talk about some things, and I hope you'll see how all these different things we're going to talk about come together here in this psalm. But before we get into breaking down these verses, let me just read to you a statement from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a pastor in the middle part of the 1900s in London, England. He was originally from Wales, one of my heroes. But he said this statement about revelation. Revelation is the act by which God communicates to human beings the truth concerning himself. Let me say it again. Revelation is the act by which God communicates to human beings the truth concerning himself, his nature, works, will, or purposes. And it also includes the unveiling of all this, the drawing back of the veil that conceals this in order that we may see it. And so here, Lloyd-Jones is reminding us that if it were not for God revealing some things to us about himself, we would not know what we need to know about him. So it's that act of God uh, communicating himself to us. Now, here's the question, and Psalm 19 answers this question. How does God do that? How does God reveal himself? How does God do this thing of communicating who he is and what he does and, and, and how we can know him? How does he do that? Well, the first way that God reveals himself, and this gets back to Psalm 19, is through what theologians call general revelation. I put there in parentheses, natural. Sometimes theologians call it natural revelation. I gave you both because I want you to be familiar with the terms if you come across them. How does God reveal himself? General revelation. So what do you mean, what do you mean by general revelation? General revelation is God's communication of himself to all persons at all times in all places. That's what general revelation is. And verses 1 through 6 speak of God's general revelation. It's what God communicates about himself through the created order. He says there, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. What are they doing? Verse 2, pouring out speech day after day. Night to night, revealing knowledge. And so when we look around us, when we look up, uh, we are uh, witnesses of God's unveiling of himself to us. God is communicating some things to us through the created order. And we need to understand that's what natural revelation is. Now, how does God, uh, or what are some ways in nature, in creation, that God reveals himself? I'm giving you some 
a couple things there. Number one is nature. We just read about that nature. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. So it's, it's nature. And nature tells us some definite things about God. For example, turn over to Romans chapter 1 with me. Romans chapter 1. What it says in verse 18. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So how has God shown some things about himself to everybody? Well, look what it says next. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. So here's what this passage is telling us. No one can proclaim innocence before God because no one can proclaim ignorance of God. Let me say it again. No one can proclaim innocence before God, they're without excuse, because no one can claim ignorance of God. Why can no one claim ignorance of God? Because God has spoken through creation. If you just look around, you look at the stars, look at the sun, uh, the, the planets, the, the galaxies, the waterfalls, the mountains, the, the, the oceans, the beach. Can I get an amen? The beach, yeah. If you, if you just look around, we're beach people, uh, my family. But if, if, you just, if, you just, if you just look around, you can see the reality of God. That there's something rather than nothing. And the fact that there's something rather than nothing means that there was someone that made it all happen. And that's what creation tells us. And it even tells us a little bit about this one who made it all happen. It says, look what it says. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. So you can look around at creation and say, someone who's bigger than me is behind all this. Someone who's really, really powerful, uh, someone who's divine is behind this. This didn't come from the hands of humanity. It came from God. And so people can look around at creation and they can see the reality of God. Now, what's the problem? Why are there atheists and why are there people that aren't seeking the one true God? Well, look what it says in the next verse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, in other words, they could look around and see some things about God. It says, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because, watch this, they exchanged the truth about God, the truth he's revealed in creation, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so people would walk outside and look around and say, you know, there may be somebody behind this. But instead of seeking him and worshiping the one who's behind all this, I'm more concerned about me. And they begin to make up their own religions that fit in with their sinful thoughts and ideas, religions that uh, meet the, met their ideas of, of, of what life should be all about. And instead of worshiping the creator, they begin to worship the creature. And, and, and they turned away from God. And that's the story of humanity. 
But nature is there to bear witness to the reality. There is a God. He made all of this, and he is really, really powerful. Listen to what Warren Wearsby writes. The existence of creation implied the existence of a creator. And the nature of the creation implied that he was wise enough to plan it and powerful enough to execute his plan and maintain what he had made. So complex a universe demands a creator who can do anything, who knows everything, and who is present everywhere, but even more. David knew that God was speaking to the inhabitants of the earth by means of his creation. Creation is a wordless book, I like that, that everybody can read because it needs no translation. God speaks through creation day after day and night after night. His speech, Psalm 19, pours out silently, abundantly, universally. And so everyone, everywhere in the world, at all times, has access to this revelation that there is a God, and they know that through the created order. Now, whether they want to admit it or not, the the evidence is there, right? The evidence is there. There And so God reveals himself through nature. But there's another way that God reveals himself through the created order, not just the existence of the universe, but he reveals himself through conscience. Conscience. Look with me over in Romans chapter 1, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 2, verse What he says, Romans chapter 2, verse 15. Speaking of the Gentiles, they mentions earlier in this passage, the Jews have the law and they rebelled against the law. Therefore, they are guilty of rebelling against God. But look what he says about the Gentiles who did not have the law that the Jews had, the law that was given through Moses, Mount Sinai, and all of that. So what about those Gentiles scattered all around the world who did not have the law of God that he gave to his people? Look what he says in verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And so here's what he is saying. There are people in this world who do not have access to the word of God, don't have access to the law the way that we do, and yet... There is this innate sense of right and wrong, and it's called the conscience. Even if people are not believers in God or believers in the Word of God or hold to the authority of Scripture, everyone has this innate sense of right and wrong. Now, that conscience has been, has been uh, marred in the fall, so it, it's, not, it's not reliable, but it's there. And so everyone has a sense that there is something that's right and something that is wrong. That's called the conscience. And the fact that there's a conscience means there's one who's behind it. There's one who's established right from wrong. The fact that there is moral law means there must be a moral law giver, right? If, when you go out on the street and you see a sign that says, speed limit 35, someone is behind that law, right? Someone brought that law into existence, whether you want to recognize it or not, right? Can you get amen? Okay. Oh, me? Okay. Whether you want to recognize it or not, it's there. Someone's behind that law. And the fact that there is a law, there's a a right and wrong in the fabric of the universe, means someone's behind it, giving us a sense of right and wrong. The one that's behind is the moral law giver, God himself. And everyone has a sense of conscience. You know, even people that say there's no such thing as absolute truth. I read a book uh, called About Moral Relativism, which is an idea in secular society that, that you really can't, you really can't, 
nail down any absolutes. There's no such thing as absolute truth. And they would say, hey, you can't say something is absolutely always wrong or some, something is absolutely always right. And, and there are these moral relativists, which, by the way, that philosophy flies directly in the face of Scripture. There is a such thing as absolute truth because God has spoken, amen. Uh, but there are people who hold that, that view. And so someone can say, you know, there's no such thing as absolute, um, something is absolutely always wrong. And they can hold that view, but if you go and steal their car, you know what they're going to say? You shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have took my car. Why? We all have this sense of fairness, don't we? This kind of idea that I need to be treated right. And that comes from our conscience. And whether someone has the Bible or the law or not, Jew, Gentile, they have a conscience which bears witness to a moral law giver. I like what Wayne Grudem says. Wicked people know that their sin is wrong, at least in large measure. They know. Wicked people know that what they're doing is evil because of that conscience. And so God reveals himself through, through nature, through the existence of the universe, and through conscience. So, from general revelation, all right, created order, conscience. From the, from the general revelation, all people have this, some knowledge that God exists. Some knowledge of what God is like. It has to be pretty smart to figure all this out. You know, you've heard about the uh, theanthropic principle, uh, the idea that the, the universe is perfectly crafted to support life here on earth. I mean, you, I mean even the tilt of the planet, if it was just a, a degree uh, closer to the sun, a degree farther away from the sun, there's no way that this planet could support life. And you look at just how it's all been crafted perfectly. Someone had to be really smart to figure all that out, right? Guess what? God's really, really smart. He's all knowing. And you look around and say, hey, there's a powerful God, there's, a, there's an intelligent God that's behind all of this. We can have some knowledge of what God is like. And we have some knowledge of his moral standards. That this God, who's behind it all, has given us some sort, even if it's marred, some sort of, of idea that there's right and wrong. Fairness and unfairness. Justice and injustice. That's why you can talk to a a believer, and they'll say there are things that are just and unjust. You can talk to someone who's an atheist, and they'll say there are things in this world that are just and unjust. We all have that sense of, of innate right and wrong in our lives. So general revelation uh, to all people gives them a knowledge that God exists, a knowledge of what God is like, a knowledge of his moral standards. But, this is key, general revelation does not provide enough information to save you from your sins. You need more information. General revelation does not provide enough information to save you from your sins. Let me give you an illustration of this. Let's just say, and this is a famous illustration that I'm borrowing, but let's just say that you were walking along the beach one day, and there in the sand was a watch, all right? And, and you pick up the watch, and you say, you know what, uh, someone made this. It's obviously, this didn't come into being through evolutionary process, right? Someone, someone made this watch, and, and they knew what they were doing. I mean, it's ticking, and it, it's crafted just right, and I like the way it looks. And, and you can say, there's, there's someone who's really wise, knew what they were doing, someone smart that was behind the making of this watch, right? But you would never have a relationship with a watchmaker until that watchmaker was revealed to you, right? 
I mean, if you didn't know the name of the person that made it, maybe he would introduce himself or she would introduce herself or someone would tell you, hey, that's the person who made that watch. Until that person was introduced to you, you could know some things about them, but you could not know them, right? That's what natural relations is about. You can know some things through creation, through conscience about God, but you can't know God personally with just natural revelation. You need more information. And I'm so grateful that God has given us more information, That information is called special revelation. Special revelation. Uh, Listen to what the Second London Confession of 1689 says about uh, about natural revelation or general revelation. The light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable. Yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will, which is necessary unto salvation. So let me say it like this. General revelation is enough to condemn, but not enough to convert. Okay, Romans 1 said they're without excuse, but it's not enough to convert. You got your thinking hats on? You're looking at me like, all right, all right. General revelation is enough to condemn, but not enough to convert. I'll talk some more about that in a few moments. We'll, we'll address in a few moments about the uh, tribal people in the middle of the jungle who've never had a missionary come to them. And they've never heard about Jesus Christ, never heard the gospel. What happens to them if they die? Do they get a pass and go to heaven? What, what happens? Well, we'll talk about that in a few moments. And it goes back to this conversation on general revelation. But God hasn't left us to just wonder who made the watch. All right, He's told us who's made it all. He's told us who is behind it. And that is called special revelation. Now, if you look back in Psalm 19, there's this shift and... And in Psalm 19, David transitions from talking about general revelation to talking about special revelation. So he's talking about the sun in verse 6, it's rising as from the end of the heavens, it's circuit to the end of them, there's nothing hidden from its heat. Then verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. And he goes on the rest of the psalm talking about the law of the Lord, the word of God. That is special revelation. Now what do you mean by special revelation? Well, let me give you a definition, it's in your notes. Special revelation refers to God's manifestation of himself to specific people at specific times in specific places, enabling those persons to enter into a redemptive relationship with him. That's what special revelation is. God's manifestation of himself to specific people at specific times in specific places, enabling those persons to enter into a redemptive relationship with him. So everyone has at their disposal... General revelation. Everyone has creation to look at. Everyone has a conscience. We've established that, right? But not everyone has the Word of God. There are still unreached people groups that don't have, don't have any access to the Bible in their language. There are millions, tens and tens of thousands of millions of people that have never even heard the name of Jesus. All right? So they don't have special revelation. This is for specific people, specific places, in specific times. So what are some examples of special revelation? All right, what, what are some biblical examples of this? Well, first is divine speech. Divine speech. For example, the burning bush. Remember when Moses is tending his sheep in the wilderness and God sets a bush on fire with himself and the bush is not consumed and it gets... Moses' attention, and Moses draws near, and the Lord says, Take off your feet, you are on what? Holy ground. And he, at that moment, begins to commission him to go to Egypt and to say to Pharaoh, Let my people 
go. And, 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 and God is calling Moses to that mission. And, and God reveals his name to him. He says, I am that I am has sent you. He reveals his divine name to Moses. That's divine speech. It's God specifically speaking to Moses at a specific time. That speech was not for everyone, was it? It was just for Moses at the burning bush. What about him speaking at the baptism of Jesus. Jesus comes out of the water. I love this in terms of the, our Trinity series on Sunday mornings. Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, comes out of the water. Holy Spirit, third person of the Godhead, descends like a dove. And then the Father, the first person of the Godhead, speaks, Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. He spoke. That's special revelation. Everybody got that? For a specific group of people at a specific time at a specific place. Here's another example of special revelation. God's word is speech through human lips. So when you see the prophets speaking in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, uh, other, other prophets, Joel, play, they'll say something like this. Thus says the Lord. Right? They're the ones speaking. Uh, they're, they're, the words are coming from their mouths, but they're speaking on behalf of God. Thus says the Lord. So that is, that is special revelation from God through human instruments to specific uh, people. Another way that God has revealed himself is through the incarnation. It says in Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, God has spoken to us through his Son. In these last days, God has spoken to us through his Son. John 1 says that Jesus explains the Father. If, if you want to know what the Father's like, look at Jesus. He exemplifies the attributes of God perfectly. We can see them here as he lived upon this earth. And so the incarnation is God revealing some things about himself to humanity. And then, this is what we most often think about in terms of special revelation. There is the written word. The written word. We'll talk a lot more about the written word on Sunday. But by the written word, I mean the Bible, the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is, is breathed out by God and is profitable for reproof, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. That is the written word. And so God has not left us to wonder about the one who created it all. Hey, the watch is really great. Who made it? God let us know who made it all. He gave us his word. So we know some specific things about God because of his word. Genesis through Revelation is the canon of Scripture, is the word of God. And because the Bible uh, is breathed out through humans, it means that God took human instruments and by the power of the Spirit breathed through them so, the, so, that, the, so that when they were writing down what we call the Bible, they were writing down exactly what God wanted them to write down. That's called the, the theory of, of inspiration. They were writing down exactly what he wanted them to write. So this is God's word, truth with no mixture of error. So if God inspired this, if God breathed through human instruments to give us the Bible, then I believe it because God doesn't make mistakes. So wait, do you believe there was a real first couple, Adam and Eve, walking around in a garden, you know, uh, before, you know, at the beginning of time, before there was uh, humanity, do you believe in Adam and Eve? Uh, absolutely. The Bible says they were there. Do you believe that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish? Absolutely. No question in my mind. 
Do you believe uh, that Elijah called down fire from heaven in 1 Kings 18? Yes, I believe Elijah called down fire from heaven. Do you, do you believe that, that three young Hebrew boys were thrown into a fiery furnace in Daniel chapter 2 and, and they were not consumed by the fire? The, the king looked and saw them walking around in the fire and there was a fourth one like the Son of Man walking around. Do you believe that? Yes. Do you believe Daniel was protected from lions all night long? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus Christ really was resurrected? Yes. Because God has breathed out his word. It is truth with no mixture of error. God doesn't lie. God doesn't make mistakes. When God wants human instruments to write something down, they're going to write down exactly what he wants them to write down. That is the doctrine of inspiration and inerrancy. That is the written word of God. Now listen to what Wayne Grudem says about special revelation. He says, How the holiness and justice of God can ever be reconciled with his willingness to forgive sins is a mystery that has never been solved by any religion apart from the Bible. Nor does the Bible give us any hope that it can ever be discovered apart from specific revelation from God. It is the great wonder of our redemption that God himself has provided the way of salvation by sending his own Son, who is both God and man to be our representative and bear the penalty for our sins, thus combining the justice and love of God in one infinitely wise act. This fact, which seems commonplace to the Christian ear, should not lose its wonder for us. It could never have been conceived by man alone apart from God's special verbal revelation. So the reason we know what salvation is, we know about the work of Jesus, is because of special revelation. And so, God gives us general revelation, creation and conscience, And he gives us special revelation so we know some more about who's behind it all. And we know what our problem is so we can deal with our problem of sin and come into a right relationship with him. Does that that make sense? Now, let's talk about the implications. I I didn't give you a chance to tell me if it made sense. Does that make sense? Okay. We'll have some time for questions in a moment. But let's talk about some implications tonight. Back in Psalm 19, what are some implications of this idea that God has revealed himself through creation and through special revelation through his word. Number one, we should appreciate creation and conscience as God's revelation. We should appreciate creation and conscience as God's revelation. Verse one, the heavens declare what? The glory, the grandeur, the greatness, the majesty of God. The heavens declare his glory. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. So you can look at creation and see how great God is. We should, we should appreciate creation, not just uh, at face value. We should, create it as being, we, should, uh, we should appreciate it as being a creation from the hand of Almighty God. We should appreciate creation and consciousness as God's revelation. So listen, Christians above all people should be enthralled by creation. We don't worship creation. We don't worship animals. Uh, you know, we, we don't worship the sun, we don't worship the moon, we don't worship the sun. That's where a lot of religions get it wrong. But we see the one behind it all and we worship him. We worship the, the creator, not the creation. And so we should appreciate creation and conscience as God's revelation. Secondly, we should strive to get the special revelation of the gospel to those who only have general revelation. We should strive to get the special revelation of the gospel, the word of God, Jesus saves sinners, to those who only have general revelation. Look what it says in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Those that do not know God, 
those that do not know how to be saved, those who are living in their spiritual ignorance. They need to know the Word of God so they can be made wise and come into a right relationship with God. So we should strive to get the special revelation of the gospel of those who only have general revelation. Now, let's get back to that question. What about the tribe, you know, in the middle of Papua New Guinea, and the, the missionaries never made it to their village, they, they've never heard about Jesus, never seen a Bible, never heard Christian radio, that they have no access to the gospel. If someone in that tribe dies, are they excused by God and they just go to heaven because they never heard the gospel? Well, Romans 1 says they are without excuse. In other words, no one can claim innocence because no one can, can claim ignorance. No one can claim innocence because no one can claim ignorance. God has spoken through the created order. Now, let's just do a quick thought experiment before I give you some more information about that. If people who never hear about Jesus get a free pass to heaven, then we should not do missions. Right? I mean, if people get a free pass to heaven because they never hear about Jesus, then instead of commissioning his disciples on the mountain in Matthew 28, Jesus should have killed all his disciples and said, hey, we need to keep this secret. Because if we keep the secret, there'll be a lot more folks to go to heaven. I mean, if people are ignorant and we go and tell them about Jesus, now they're on the hook, aren't they? So if God wants to get more folks to heaven, and they can get to heaven apart from the gospel, the best thing we could do is just be quiet, never tell anybody about Jesus. Keep it a big secret, right? But that's not the case. God said, go. Go to all the world. Make disciples. Go to every nation preaching the gospel. Preach the gospel to every creature. Why? Because a person who has never heard the gospel is still without excuse. They have the created order and they have not sought the God who's behind it all. They begin to worship themselves, worship maybe creation rather than the creator. And instead of seeking truth, they begin to as it says, their foolish hearts were dark and began to walk away from the truth about God. So, uh, our job is to go to these people who are living in the middle of a jungle, have never heard about Jesus, and get to them with urgency so they can hear the gospel and be saved and not go to hell when they die. It is of utmost importance that we tell these folks about Jesus Christ. We should have urgency in our Gospel. They have general revelation, but general revelation doesn't save. It just condemns, doesn't convert, right? They need to hear special revelation, the word of God, the gospel, so they can be saved. That's what Romans 1 teaches. So, but here's another thing, because people say, well, you know, is there any hope? Well, the Bible teaches, Romans 1 teaches, that if you, if you respond to the light God has given you, God will give you more light. Okay? So if someone sees creation... And they say, I want to know who that God is, and I want to worship him because he's worthy of my worship and allegiance. I want to live under his authority. And they respond to the light of creation. God will give them more light, even to the point where he'll send them a gospel witness. And I believe the biblical example of this is Cornelius over in Acts chapter 10. The Bible says Cornelius was a God-fearer. He wasn't a Christian yet, but he was trying to figure it out. And he was trying to know the true God. He wanted to do the right thing. He was trying to find the true God. He was looking at Judaism to try to find the true God. And so God said, you know what? 
You're responding to the light I'm giving you, I'll give you more light. And God uh, appeared to Peter in a vision and sent Peter, remember this, to Cornelius' household and said, share the gospel with him. Cornelius heard the gospel from Peter and Cornelius was saved, right? As Cornelius responded to the light God had given him, God gave him more light up to the point where he heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if people do respond to the light, God will give them more light. Okay, God, that, that, That's how it works with people who are living only with general revelation. And so uh, we ought to strive to get the special revelation of the gospel to those who only have general revelation. This should show us why it's so important to do missions. We want to make wise the simple. We don't want people to die in their ignorance and, and go to hell. We want them to know the truth of the gospel so that they can go to heaven. Now here's a third implication. We should treasure God's special revelation by learning it and living according to it. We should treasure God's special revelation by learning it and living according to it. The fact that God has spoken should remind us that the Bible is a precious gift. Listen, God didn't have to speak to us, did he? He didn't have to give us his word, but he chose to. And that's grace, that God has spoken to us in his word. We need to get back to understanding that the Bible is not just some religious manual that Christians have. The Bible is God speaking to us. And we get the incredible privilege of opening up our Bibles as believers in Christ with the indwelling Spirit helping us to understand it. We get the incredible privilege of reading the Word of God, having God speak to us every time we open up His Bible. Amen? It's a great privilege. It's a great, I'll talk some more about this on Sunday as well. But it's a great, great privilege. And that's what he's getting to in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord uh, are right. What God says is right. It rejoices the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. God doesn't just give us commandments to take away our fun. God gives us commandments because they're what's best for us. They're pure. They're, they're right. They enlighten the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. When we read about God and we fear the God we read about, then there's a, there's a purity in that, a purity in our relationship with Him. The rules of the Lord are true, righteous altogether. These things, precepts, commandments, rules, testimonies, law, they are more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. By keeping them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there's great Rewards. When we read the Bible, we're warned about things that destroy us, and we're rewarded by doing what God tells us to do. And then David gets personal in verses 12 through 14. I love this. He says, who can, who can live a life that honors God? How can we do that? Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, innocent of of great transgressions. Then he says, let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So David's saying, I want to know your word. I want to study your word. I want to learn your word. I want to build my life upon your word so that my, my mouth and my heart can be pleasing in your sight. When you keep the word of God, God uses it to transform your life and make you uh, pure and holy. And we should take the word of God seriously. Now, having said that, all right, appreciating uh, general revelation, getting specific revelation uh, to those who only have general revelation, and treasuring God's special revelation by learning it and living according to it. Here's the question 
when's the last time you read the Bible? And when's the last time you read the Bible with a sense of awe and wonder? And are you making sure that you're reading all of God's words systematically? Now, you know, there's nothing magical about reading the Bible through in a year. That's what I do. I, I try to every year read the entire Bible in a, in a, a year time span. And, and it, the Bible doesn't tell us to do that, okay? But we, we work on increments of years, right? So it kind of just works in my mind. And you can divide the Bible up in, in, in um, um, it, what's the word I'm looking for? In um, digestible nuggets uh, over a year's time. So, so, I'm not saying you have to read the entire Bible in a year, but I am saying you need some sort of system where you're reading through the entire Word of God. Maybe every year and a half or every two years or something like that. But you need to make sure you are systematically reading all of God's Word because those obscure verses over in Leviticus about two pieces of cloth being different and they shouldn't be sewn together, those are just as inspired by God as John 3.16. They are. They're just inspired. We ought to read all of God's Word. And by the Holy Spirit, seek to learn it, seek to understand it, seek to grow in our comprehension. And as we do that, we will be changed and transformed by God's grace. And so, take God's Word seriously. Jesus said over in John 17, he's praying to the Father, he said, Lord, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. Uh, The truth of God's Word is the primary instrument of sanctification. You will not grow apart from an intake of the Word of God. It's just not going to happen. And so we need to take seriously the Word of God. It's, 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 it's sweeter than honey, more desirable than much fine gold.